Welcome to Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Relationships are probably where we spend the most time and the most energy in our lives. They can be the sources of our greatest joy, but they can also cause us the deepest pain and frustration. This podcast is about helping you connect a little bit better every day in your relationships. Welcome to episode 26 of Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. I want to thank Chach7776, Sample Mom, Lizzie Full, Aztec443, Moosey Boy, and Mom to Two Teens for leaving such warm, wonderful reviews on Apple for this podcast. If you would take a moment to hit subscribe, leave a five-star rating or a positive review, I would be so grateful. When we get more reviews and ratings, we're able to sell ourselves to really good guests, which I am committed to bringing you every week. Just imagine your custom salon hair color, handmade by a colorist and delivered to your front door. Well, that's Delarica Hair Color. It's made in Italy and developed by a board-certified hair colorist who believes everyone deserves rich, creamy hair color, even if you don't have the time or the finances to visit the salon on a regular basis. What makes Delarica Hair Color different is all first-time clients meet with a partner stylist that we call Hair Heroes, either online or in one of their partner salons across the U.S. If you're wondering if home hair color is right for you, go to their website and tell them your hair story by answering a few questions. A hair hero will review your hair color profile and let you know if home hair color would be an option for you and consult with you further if needed. Next, Delarica ships your custom color and will meet with you online to help you apply at home if needed. Home hair color just got upgraded. Go to their website, delaricahaircolor.com, and tell them about your hair. That's Delarica. D-E-L-L-A-R-I-C-C-A, haircolor.com, your hair hero. And I just want to tell you that Delarica, personally, um, it was developed by my hair colorist. And so during COVID, when I couldn't go in for my highlights, um, I did this process myself. So I have used it and it is a wonderful product and it gave me really easy natural results. My husband helped me apply it in the back. My daughter could, I could have done it by myself too, but it's so easy to use. Um, and so go check it out. And thank you for sponsoring this episode, Delarica. My guest today on Connecting is Elizabeth Cohn Stunts. Elizabeth is a cancer survivor and Zen student. She's a psychotherapist who works from a contemporary psychoanalytic and dialectical behavior therapy perspective. She's on the faculty of Westchester Center for Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy. After many years of involvement with social and emotional services for people with cancer and their loved ones, Stunts partnered with Marsha Linehan, the developer of DBT, to create a program of coping skills. They're the co-authors of Coping with Cancer, DBT Skills to Manage Your Emotions, and Balance Uncertainty with Hope. Welcome, Elizabeth. I am so excited to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you for a while, um, ever since I found out about your book. So in your book, Coping with Cancer, you find, um, you talk about finding dialectical behavior therapy and your interest in that. And for our listeners who know what it is, and I'm sure many of them don't know who it is, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So um, dialectical behavior therapy is an evidence-based treatment that has been proven effective to help people in challenging situations um, cope and be more resilient. My co-author is Marsha Linehan, who is who developed DBT, and she Time Magazine just came out a couple of years ago with a um, issue about scientists and geniuses who have transformed the world. And Marsha is one of the few living people that is in that um, edition 
Wow. Yeah, it's really amazing because her work is really used as gold standard in most inpatient psychiatric hospitals because it has been proven to help people um, in suicidal um, places or dealing with any challenging situations to cope and be more resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. I, you know, I, I, I learned about it in graduate school, of course, and um, it's not something I, I use every day in my practice. But as I was reading your book, I, I just am smiling because I have a little bit of a scary doctor appointment this afternoon. And this morning, as I felt my anxiety, I went back to your book and did some of the things in the chapter. It's not cancer related or anything like that. It's just a small little procedure that might be a little ouch. And um, but yeah, so it's it's so helpful in any situation that can be challenging from something small to something huge. Well actually that's what we're seeing that while we wrote it for cancer, um, it can help in any challenging situation, certainly other medical situations like you're describing. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is even in this pandemic, a lot of people have been using it and referring to it because it's ways to cope with uncertainty. And we have uncertainty in all. Cancer is not the only place where we're facing uncertainty. And in this pandemic, we have been having to be head on facing it. Yeah, and the unknown is what often you know, is so fearful. In fact, you talk about in your book um, that fear is probably people, uh, over half of people surveyed said fear was one of the biggest emotions that they've had to deal with. Absolutely. And what we're seeing, so so that's absolutely applicable to cancer. But in this pandemic, think how frightened we have all been. And that when we're facing an uncertainty, something that we can't control. We like to have the illusion that we can, our life is predictable. We know what's happening to us. We can control that. And we don't like to be reminded that that uncertainty is in all parts of life. It's not just about cancer or even just this pandemic. But who of us wants to face that? We don't want right. to deal with that. Right, right. Yeah, we know it on a deep level, but to really kind of surrender to that is really, really difficult. Absolutely. And people don't want to do it. Um, actually, I came, I, I'm a psychoanalyst by training, mm-hmm. but I came to DBT um, partly as Marsha's Zen student. So Marsha is a Zen master. And DBT is actually a pra- or is actually practical translations of the wisdom of Zen, centuries old um, philosophies that Marsha operationalized into actual coping skills. And what's really cool is that what she has done and those coping skills and the wisdom of of, of Zen is now being validated by neuroscience. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I interviewed someone uh, just recently on the effects of emotional suppression on our body. And then I saw it show up in your book too. Oh, because we see the, the wisdom that way everywhere. I mean, it's not, we all understand the wisdom of understanding about emotional suppression. Um, And all different kinds of therapy have, whether it's exposure therapy or uncovering therapy, have gone in that direction. But now research is validating the harms that way. But easier said than done facing um, those uncomfortable emotions, especially when it's something so terrifying as the pandemic or cancer. So can you share, you know, just one or two practical steps? And of course, you know, we'll, we'll put your book in the show notes and, and I highly recommend that people get it. But if people need to today, listening to this, regulate their emotions more, can you give them one or two tips on how to do that? Absolutely. So there are really four parts that affect how we deal with our emotions. Um, what our body does what we do with our thoughts, what we do with our emotions, and what we do with our actions. You can regulate, you can make steps to regulate your emotions in all four ways. For example, you can use your body. So when you take a longer exhale, um, you can 
calm your body and you actually regulate your central nervous system. So normally you might breathe out to the count of four. When you take a longer exhale to the count of, let's say, six, that literally calms your nervous system. Mm -hmm. So that's one great way. Other bodily ways that you can do it um, is in muscle relaxation. Think about when you're anxious, you get really tight and you Mm -hmm. tense your muscles. So teaching yourself to go through from your forehead all the way down, tighten a muscle and then relax it. And each, as you relax the muscles, that calms it yourself. One other one for your body, which I think is great, um, is that a 20-second hug Mm. lowers stress and anxiety. So there are all those physical ways that you can do it. Those are great tips. Well, I was just going to say, when you talked about tightening our muscles, I'm in Houston, Texas, and just a few weeks ago, we had, um, you know, that horrible winter freeze. We all lost power for days. It was awful. We had no water, no power, no anything. Um, and, and we're not really built for that down here and prepared for that. Um, and one of the things I was saying, my husband, we were so sore because we were so stressed and we were tightening our muscles. Absolutely. For like three or four days as it was, you know, 30 degrees in our house. And we didn't know when power was going to come on. We lost all our food. We had no water. Um, and and I, my daughter, who's 14, couldn't understand her muscles didn't hurt. But I was trying to explain to her this, how when we're stressed, we just, I'm doing it right now. People can't see it. We just clench. Yes. And so just kind of doing that. And, and I've done that when I've had trouble falling asleep. I'll lay in bed and kind of tighten and loosen from head to toe. So I love that one. And I forget about it. So I'm glad you reminded us. But you were going to share some more. Well, yeah. So you can you can calm yourself and regulate your emotions in all these ways. So those are some of the bodily ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the neuroscience ways of changing your emotions is to name what you feel. The neuroscience expression is name it to tame it. Um, And DBT skills take you through an observing and identifying. But the simple shorthand is saying to yourself, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling scared. I am angry. That just the labeling of the emotion calms calms yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, also, I think, a really great tip. It's a great tip for patients and it's a great tip for, for um, therapists to know, to help people identify what they're feeling. Yeah, because so many people don't, they know they're feeling something. They'll even come to me sometimes with a chronic cough or stomach issues and they don't know that it's anxiety coming up in their body because they don't take the time to name it and look at it. Right. And we don't always understand all the physical correlates of the emotions. So in our book, we take like, we have three chapters on different emotions, one on stress and anxiety, one on sadness and one on anger. We go through and use all the words that can be that are commonly used to describe those emotions. But then we go through and help people say, okay, these are the physical correlates that you can see when you're anxious, that your muscles will tighten, that, you know, you could be sweating, that you, there are different ways um, to help people learn to identify what we're feeling because that's way easier said than done. Right. Yeah. A lot of people, it takes a long time to really figure out what they're feeling. Exactly right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Even us therapists that think, oh, we know all this. Let's be real. So, oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, and, yeah. and we don't always pay attention. We don't pay attention to how it's showing up in our body. Um, and now I want to move to one of the other ways to regulate your emotions, which is with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, because our thoughts can really hijack our emotions and make them way more intense. And we can assume all kinds of things. I'm going to die. I'm a burden. I'll never be able to go back to work. I'm going to lose my hair. I'll, you know, and we just have a whole list of them. And again, not just about cancer, but about life. Yeah. Um, so identifying the things that we are 
thinking that are making us more anxious, upset, scared, angry. You know, this person's never going to help me. Um, whatever is the assumption, and we have a ton of them, but our assumptions are opinions that are not based on fact. Mm -hmm. So helping us um, identify what we're thinking, and Marsha has a great um, tool that she calls Check the Facts. Mm -hmm. Stop for a minute and say, whoa, what am I thinking? And is that accurate? And how likely is that that that's really going to happen? Instead of getting those thoughts hijack our emotions and rev us up. And if we pause for a moment and say, wow, what am I thinking? Um, and is, is that really true? So, and the other part about our thoughts is really taking a full picture. Mm -hmm. um, so what we are very prone to do is seeing things as one way or the other. Um, this is horrible. Um, and cancer is pretty horrible. I mean, it's not something you love, but the truth is it's easy to oversimplify a situation and say it is simply one way or the other. Most of us, when we're diagnosed, are not completely healthy, obviously, but most of us are not dying immediately either. And mm -hmm. so the tendency to take something and make it very black and white can get us focused more on one side of the picture and we can miss the hope. We can miss that we can be terrified and that there can be reasons for hope at the same time. So the D of dialectics, uh, the D of DBT, sorry, stands for dialectics. So dialectics is really just a 50 cent word that means that two things that seem to be opposite can both be true. So it's true that we can be terrified and that there can be reasons for hope. It's true that we can feel very weak and access our own strength. It's true that we can really be stressed. And that's not just a disaster. There's actually an upside to stress. It motivates us to take care of ourselves. So part of the ways to regulate emotions is to think about what else could be true? What's another viewpoint of this same situation? I love that. What else can be true? Yes. And what am I not thinking about? Yeah, that's a good thing to ask. You know, it, this leads me to the next question that I really wanted to ask, um, because I am a big proponent, as everybody is, but I've been for a long time of gratitude. And in the chapter on sadness, you really talk about gratitude and laughter, too, which I loved. Yep. So tell us the importance of both of these, of gratitude and laughter in coping with cancer. Okay, so gratitude is a good segue from this business of one side or the other. Because right. some people will say, in this pandemic, what am I going to be what am I going to be grateful for? When I have cancer, excuse me, you're asking me to think about what to be grateful for. So at moments that life is down and we're feeling unlucky, gratitude can feel like um, it's too much to ask. Mm. Um, on the other hand, there are always another side to life that even when we have cancer. We have people around us that love us. We may have doctors that are really helping us. We have a family. We may have a family behind us. And the, the research is that patients, that it's really in patients, it's worthwhile for patients, that patients that could make a list of five things to be grateful for um, were significantly happier reported fewer health problems than people who just focused on ordinary events. One of the people I interviewed for the book said to me that if he ignored the good things in life that were happening, he spent the whole day unhappy and lost the day. And that a little better uh, is, is better than even if he got 5% of the day. Mm -hmm. um, but the piece that I want to highlight here is, I'm not just saying, look at the bright side. Look, in a pandemic or with cancer, the stress is really understandable. And 
we are hardwired to think about the negative side first so that if we're feeling bummed out and angry and upset and scared, that's completely understandable. And we don't want us to give ourselves a hard time. But going back to my point about a balanced view, when we look at both sides, um, that, that there are both negative and positive. I'm not saying ignore the negative, but take, it's really about the balance of looking at both. When we look at both sides, it eases our anxiety and it strengthens our resilience because we trust that we can cope. Mm-hmm. When we can see that balanced perspective, the negative and the positive. But I'm not just saying ignore the negative. That's natural. Yeah. And that's the whole premise of DBT is that you have these what seem like opposite poles, but we can feel both and we should feel both really and balance it. Yes. And balance it. And so that we want to balance the way we are feeling, acting, thinking. That's that's the whole a whole ball of wax in a nutshell is, is really it's about balancing our emotions, our yeah. thoughts, our actions, our body. Um, th- those are the ways we cope, not yeah. ignoring one side. You have to pay attention to both sides. I talk about it like a seesaw and it goes back and forth um, because it's the way we're coping and life is always changing. So think about it, whether we like it or not, sun rises in the morning. So how do we respond? Often, oh, great day. Then clouds can come by. Oh, this stinks. Um, Later, you know, there could be a dark, terrible thunderstorm, probably when you were dealing with in Texas a few weeks ago. Hard to remember that there are sunny, bright, lovely days down there. And we forget the other side. And so the the trick in coping is really to remembering both sides and remembering that it's going to change. It's why I like the seesaw metaphor. We're always going back and forth. And none of us, although our goal is to stay in a balanced middle, that's unrealistic. We don't. And we're always going back and forth. Ugh, we have these dark thoughts. And remembering that the other side is there. I use a quote from Desmond Tutu and that, where he says, hope is remembering that light exists even in the darkest times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I love that. I I remember that. I love this seesaw analogy because I can picture back to being a kid where you do get it perfectly balanced and that's an amazing feeling, but it doesn't last. It doesn't last. But you can still try and play for that, right? And and then always, and often the joy is, is, is the play of going back and forth. And we all do. None of us are in. Zen masters like Marsha Linehan don't stay in that middle place all the time. Yeah. Well, speaking of um, how people can help us and relationships can help us, I love that your book focuses on nurturing relationships while going through cancer and how important that is. But I'm going to tell you um, personally, I mean, I have a close family member that just – went through breast cancer, just finished treatment and a mastectomy and lots of close friends. Um, and sometimes I'm terrified of saying the wrong thing, Liz, or doing the wrong thing, because I've heard so many people say, don't say this or saying this is the wrong thing. And I think sometimes we're, we almost put a little bit of distance because we don't want to do or say the wrong thing. It's scary. And so can you talk us through some of the things we should say and some of the things maybe we shouldn't say to someone going through cancer? Yeah. I'm going to talk about that more as a whole. It's not just what we say, but in terms of an attitude um, about it, because um, if we pull away as is you could be your tendency and lots of our tendencies, because we don't want to say the wrong thing. In some ways, that can be leaving the person more alone and feel forgotten and feel like they're not understood and ignored. Um, So I guess the first thing I would say is that we should be aware of our own assumptions and biases and not assume we know what the other person is feeling, thinking, or what is useful. Um, And not to be afraid to ask uh, and say, is this useful? I mean, one of the things that people with 
cancer can complain about a lot is that if patient if if loved ones or really well-intentioned people say don't worry you'll be fine um it can be experienced sometimes as minimizing or invalidating how terrible it is for them and what they're going through but people don't want to be just left alone, as is our inclination when we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. So I encourage people all the time, ask, is this helpful or does that does that feel encouraging or does that feel minimized? And just asking that, um, particularly the things about we all who love people and care about people um, want to be helpful and we feel really helpless. So we want to do things and we want to say, use this doctor or try this Mm -hmm. uh, thing. And it, those are well-intentioned suggestions and it make us feel less helpless and it may be received just, just how we want it to be received. And sometimes it can be received as critical of what the other person is doing. um, And that, um, that they don't know what they're doing. Um, So, I find it really useful to say to people, um, hey, somebody recommended a, another good doctor. Are you interested in that name? Um, I read about this diet. Is that something useful to share or not? Um, and so ask people um, what they want. And what's particularly important about that is that when we're asking, then we're um, respecting their self-respect that we want to feel useful and competent, um, but often a person who's going through a medical thing like cancer can feel like their competence and their doubt of themselves is uh, is diminished. So we want to make sure that we're encouraging that by respecting them enough and saying, "Is this useful? Is this helpful? What what could you know? Would you like that or not?" Mm-hmm. And People are very different. And for us to remember that the patient who's living with cancer is really the expert on what's helpful for them. Mm -hmm. Say that again. (laughs) The person who's living with cancer is the expert on what's helpful to them. And that's important to say to the person who's living with cancer. But it's also important for those of us who are around the person with cancer, whether they're our family or a co-worker whatever, to respect them and support them and validate their own trust and respect of themselves. Um, And there are very different styles. Some of us like to talk about cancer, like some of us who are living with cancer, like talk about it, share our stories, say how we're feeling. Others of us are way more private and that's not useful. So, when, when a loved one is pushing us to talk about it and our style is to be more private or we cope better by just sticking with the facts and not focusing as much on our emotions, that could feel like we're being misunderstood or intruded on. So that's why asking, is this useful? Is this helpful? What works for you? And respecting that some of us want to be very open and share and some of us want to be really private. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some of us like to go through when I was going through it, I like to go through what the doctor said and all my emotions, as my husband would say, ad nauseum. And he is more the person that's just the facts. We've already covered that. And it could feel dismissive if he didn't want to hear that. And so often I would talk with other people about that. But we each have our own styles. And even as the listener and the loved one, knowing what our own biases and styles are is really helpful. And then trying to respect the other person, but asking what's useful. And then often what's more helpful is listening than giving our advice. And that's really hard. We want to be helpful. And just sitting and listening and accepting that there are limits to what we can do, but not underestimating what our presence and our interest. Um, And often when I have people around me that are unwell, um, and they may or may not want to talk, 
even I've written this book, they may not want to talk to me and just shooting an email, thinking about you Mm -hmm. so that we're trying, noticing our, as you did, Kim, noticed your inclination to pull away. Mm -hmm. Then people can feel very left alone. So if we feel that, or perhaps the person with cancer is holding us at a distance, just still an email. And days thinking about you, you're in my thoughts, you're in my heart, not asking them um, of anything. And um, also the piece when we're doing these offers, I want, can I bring you food or um, I'm bringing you food or we're doing this concrete offers. Uh, Tuesday's a good day. Can I bring you dinner that day? Mm -hmm. Not just let me know when that leaves the burden Mm -hmm. on the person with cancer, but also being open to, he may not want a million casseroles um, mm-hmm. and not taking a person when somebody says, no, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. Or I don't want to talk. That's not necessarily about you or the relationship and being able to do that. Yeah. Those are great tips. Well, that's really important. And I think um, I learned kind of the hard way, you know, like a small, like a yes. we've, all, we've all done that. Right. And so I've gotten a lot, Unfortunately, I hate to say that I've gotten a lot better because that means that I've known more people in my life as I get older that are going through cancer. But with my most recent friend who's battling breast cancer, I did exactly what you said. And I was terrified to reach out. And I told her that I said, you know, I was really afraid to reach out. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. What do you need? And you know, Liz, you're right. The thing she needed the very most was just someone to listen that is real. I did bring her food and I did, you know, I did, I did have learned through my mistakes and I did just say, I know you have this, I'm dropping off food. And if you can eat it, your family can eat it or you can freeze it and would bring, drop off a book on her doorstep. Um, just not say, would you like this? And, and not a cancer book, you know, a magazine or something for her to read. And I know attention's hard during chemo, but something light or, you know, a devotional or just something very simple. But I, I do think a lot of people feel so afraid of not saying or doing the right thing. And if we can just be open and honest and sometimes even tell that person, I want to be there for you. Tell me the best way to do that. Or let me know when I've gone, you know, because they may not be able to tell you you know, advise you what to do, but say, I'd like to do this. Does that work? Right. Um, But the piece of our inclination, I'm so glad you're raising this uh, to back off is completely understandable and natural. And then the person living with cancer feels abandoned and alone. Um, Or because they can't do the same things with us, then we don't call up or for many people, they want us to tell, they want us to turn to them in the same way we did. So sometimes we will fragilize, Marsha likes to talk about it, oh, yeah. with cancer and say, oh, I'm not going to ask her what to do with this. I don't want to bother her. Well, then the person is left feeling incompetent. Um, and sometimes people don't want to tell people in their workplace because they don't want to be discounted and they want to know that we're going to still turn to them um, and that they haven't lost their role in our lives. Um, So saying, is it useful for me to still talk to you about my problems or not? Do you want me to, you know, and what's too much and what's too little and having honest conversations about your relationships. That's great advice, Liz. But I think that's going to help so many people. And I did find I just got to jump over that selfish nervousness of offending someone and just do what they need and be there for them. And that's the key. And 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 maybe even remind yourself every time you do reach out to that person, this isn't about your discomfort. But I also found like, what I love about texting right now, and with a few people I have in my life going through cancer. Um, I can text them and I always start with no need to reply. Oh, that's a great one. That right? is a great one, Kim. Yep. But I'm thinking of you, if you need to talk, I'm available this afternoon. I love that you give a concrete time, like call me. That was like, then it leaves it on them, but I'm available, to, you know, right. Mm-hmm. Or I'll call you at three if that's a good time. But I always kind of, um, 
give them an out in case they are tired or they're talked out or they're not up to it emotionally. And that's something I learned just recently or not, I guess, yeah, I learned just recently to do that. And it, it's so helpful. And and actually people have done that to me, not, I'm not going through cancer, but lately with the pandemic or they know I'm talking to clients all day. And so I'm kind of talked out at yeah. that point of the day. Yes. Um, and I love that permission. It's permission to not have to reply. And so I think for people going through cancer, that's another gift we can give totally, them. Totally, totally. That's a great yeah. one. So, um, so I loved that your book talks about how studies show the psychosocial support improves both the quality of life and the survival rates for cancer. So what we're talking about is so important that they have these. But aside from this talking stuff and listening, are there some concrete things that really helped you or that can help some people that maybe I haven't thought of or other people listening haven't thought of that can support people besides a meal, you know, and those kinds of things? Yeah, it's more your presence. It's okay, more your presence and your connection. And by presence, I don't necessarily mean physical presence. That's why the business of thinking about you. I, I just had um, a, a friend whose husband was very sick um, and I'd written this book and she went for a year as he was dying and all during the time I would just send her, you know, thinking about you, I'm around these times, when and if you want. And um, it was very helpful. And when she was ready, um, so Without being intrusive, no need to reply, thinking about you, I'm there. The message is you're not alone, but in whatever way, because remember that the patient is the expert in what's useful. At some moments, they want to talk. Some moments, they want to take a walk and talk nothing about cancer. And in some ways, they want other moments, they might want totally to do that. Mm-hmm. Um so that they may want to feel as, quote, normal as possible, or they may want a big ear um, yeah. and different moments, different times, and not taking it personally. So presence and connection. I love that. And you're right. It's individual. I know some people, you know, when they were going through cancer, didn't want any sugar or junk food, or it was, you know, contraindicated for their particular treatment. And then we have a friend in California that was so, it was so hard in the last couple of years as she was going through it because we weren't local. So it was very hard to really do anything there for her. But one day she mentioned on Facebook that she was craving chocolate and, um, it's my husband's like best friend from boarding school. And that moment he sent her like the most wonderful handmade dark chocolate truffles. Um, you know, cause we could, that's something we could do and she could share with her family, but you're right. That feeling of helplessness, watching somebody you love suffer. And I know that that's our issue and that that can feel controlling, intrusive, but yeah, but again, the balance to pull away completely or pull away too much, um, then that leaves the person alone and feeling like, oh my God, all my relationships have changed. And remember that in the morning they may want the chocolate and in the afternoon they may feel not, right? Mm-hmm. Or or the conversation or the connection mm-hmm. or um, and that that changes. Well, yeah, because I imagine it's an extremely lonely process you're alone with your thoughts and nobody can really understand how you're feeling and so any way that people can be present for you is a gift yes that's right that's right and some people love to join support groups virtual real you know and for other people that's not their way some people like to have a one-on-one with somebody else that is living through cancer or their diagnosis. And that's very helpful. Some people like to do it with a professional. It, again, different strokes for different folks and respecting that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm switching gears here a little bit, but you have a chapter on talking with children and even talking with coworkers about cancer. And I'm wondering if you could offer just one or two suggestions um, for our listeners about that. My background is that I was a child, I am a child therapist. Um, so, so I've done a lot of that work. Um, and when we have to talk to a child about cancer, um, 
that's for me, but I think for most people I've talked to, that was the hardest part of talking to my own children about mm. my cancer. Um, so the first tip I would say is that it's useful to use some of the motion regulation strategies that we talk about in the book and some of which I've talked about here before we do the communication. Because mm. if we're so anxious or so angry or so upset that if we can kind of calm ourselves and have ourselves in as balanced a place as possible, um, that's really important. Number two, um, whether it's a coworker or a child, mm -hmm. um, or love, whatever, is that anybody we're talking to, is that we shouldn't assume we know what the other person is thinking or feeling unless they mm -hmm. tell us. And we're very quick to make assumptions about what our coworker is gonna think what our children is feeling, what our partner thinks, um, and that the need to check that out is really, really important. It's kind of what I said to you when I said how, when you asked about how to help others, I said, ask, don't just assume that you know what they're thinking or feeling because that's not based on facts. Yeah. And you, we can't, we're not mind readers and we can't know what another is thinking or feeling. Um, um, in talking to children, um, I would say that the most important thing is to maintain the trust. No lying at all. You don't have to give them every detail, um, but not lying. Um, because if they can't trust you, um, and I've heard the reverberations of parents who have said and not said pieces, then they feel like that it's such a terrible problem, it can't be talked about. Um, obviously how much we're going to say varies with the child's ages, but, um, one of the biggest mistakes I see people do is that they underestimate that even the youngest child is aware of changes. They're aware of routines and they're aware of our emotions. Our children know us the best. They can read us like a book. They may not know what's going on, but they know something is going on. And while our wish to try and protect a child, and you see it with young children and adults who want to protect their adult children, we want to protect everyone from mm -hmm. this kind of reality, that um, a child's imagination can be worse than the reality and cause more distress. And also then, if it's not discussed in any way, the message is the problem is so terrible that adults can't discuss it. Um, and when we don't discuss it with the child, just like I was saying with the cancer patient, when we don't talk directly, we leave the person more alone. And that's what happens a lot for children. Parents don't want to talk with them about too many details. So the child is left alone to deal with how they're feeling and how they're reacting and imagining these kinds of things, uh, imagining all kinds of things, often worse than the reality. Um, yeah. Or even if it's a tr it's a catastrophic reality, they're dealing with it by themselves, and they're losing precious time with a parent. Yeah. Um, so I always recommend simple, honest language um, that eliminates confusions and misunderstanding. Um, I encourage, but people have to make their own decisions. People to use the word cancer. Because even if they're not going to, they're going to hear it somewhere around. Um, and then if it becomes an unmentionable word, it becomes what we used to call the big C, then it's even scarier. Um, and that using the actual words of what's happening can help to maintain a trusting relationship. With a younger child, I often will define cancer as that means that cells are growing more quickly than usual. Um, you don't have to say that means it's this deadly disease, but that this is what's happening. And remember the whole notion of dialectics, that things can be two different ways. That's very important with a child to acknowledge that some people associate cancer with a very scary word um, and to acknowledge that. And often we say, uh, what I like to say to a child is, that it's scary because there weren't always as good ways to treat it and manage it as there are now. Um, and acknowledging that it can be both scary 
and hopeful at the same time. So mm -hmm. giving some version of a treatment plan to the child doesn't need to be in big details, but they're going to get this kind of medicine. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And that they're, we're hopeful that that will be helpful so that you want to acknowledge both the scary parts and bring in the hopeful parts in it. Um, so that, um, and talk about the hope of, of your particular treatment plan. You know, the doctors think this can help me. Um, for things like what the treatment plan is for chemo or radiation, if I've used the words that the cells are growing too quickly, I say that the chemo or the radiation are ways to slow down the rapid cell growth. Um, and it's important to say things like that um, many of the side effects like losing your hair are reactions to the medicine, not necessarily the illness. So whether when somebody is exhausted and um, all of that, some of that, that's important for all of us to understand and remember yeah. that those may be reactions to the medicine and not necessarily to the cancer. Um, children's responses vary. So some children ask a lot of questions and want to know a lot of their details. Other children don't and clam up. So just like I said with the cancer patient, if a child asks a lot of questions, great. If they don't, don't go into the detail. Some children jump into caretaking and say they have to put their lives on hold. Others appear to totally ignore what's happening and just throw themselves into their own life. As with other parts of cancer, I always think a balanced middle path is the best way that a child should, yeah, mommy might need your help on something and your own life is important. Both are true. That's the, the mantra of the balance part is both are true. And a child's questions don't necessarily come all at once. Um, so that we want to listen, you know, maybe they're going to not ask anything now, but at bedtime three weeks from now, you're going to have some questions. And you want to listen for misconceptions like, is cancer contagious? Um, and some of the tough questions, of course, are, will you die? Is mommy going to die? Um, and again, you want to balance hope and honesty. Something like all of us I will someday, but hopefully not from cancer. Or we hope not. And doctors are working very hard to help me. Yeah, those are great suggestions. I think anybody listening is just that that's going to help them so much because I think you're right. It's so scary to sit down and tell your young children or adult children anything like this. And I love how you started out by saying regulate your own emotions because we know there's this interpersonal synchronicity. And, you know, and it goes on even when you say use the word cancer. I, the first thing I thought of is name it and tame it. Absolutely. You know? Yep. Yep. It, it's another example of it, it's scarier if you, if you leave it unnamed and that unknowing that we talked about at the beginning. Um, kind of as we wrap up here, I want to ask you one more question. The final chapter is called Living with Meaning. And I have some friends that have gone through cancer and several of them had told me that in a way it was a gift to them because they totally stopped and they were able to see so clearly what was important or meaningful. And they kind of changed their life after. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, so after diagnosis, many people, it's very common, um, reassess their priorities and how they want to live now. For some people, now their physical, emotional, or financial comfort and security is more important. Um, and for many people, issues of faith and spirituality can mm -hmm. seem more central. We've talked before about uh, earlier about people feeling more alone. Um, and they may feel more alone interpersonally, but also from whatever has used to guide them and carry them um, so that they, it's important to reconnect um, for what are the sources that can um, connect and carry them at this point. Um, that it, and it gives people the opportunity to deepen their connection to what matters most, to connect to the people or the activities 
values, ideas um, that are most significant to them. Um, partly, um, the way we do this, Marsha calls it radical acceptance. Um, and it's really about facing the realities of what we can control um, and that facing that um, we may not live as long um, uh, as we hoped or wish can be a powerful incentive to think more about how we want to live while we're still alive and live more meaningfully. Um, I go through some questions to how to assess what's most meaningful. So um, to focus on helping us think about what's most meaningful, um, I often ask people to think about memories, relationships, places, or traditions that have made the most impact on them. Mm -hmm. um, or to remember people, places, or activities that bring them the most joy. Um, to think about who or what has been helpful in moments of fear and doubt. Um, and whether they have different priorities at this time. Do they want to focus more or less on certain relationships? Um, some people feel differently about a work-life balance at this point, um, or whether they are more open to feeling loving or being loved. Um, many people want to consider people or organizations that they feel responsible for or activities that give them a sense of purpose, what um, is important for them, um, what they enjoy, is their creativity important, and that may be focusing on the sights and sounds or smells that move them. Um, when people focus on meaningful relationships, often it's their family, but the nurturing bond could be a chosen family, friends, um, relationships with a neighbor, coworker, medical provider, or even a pet. Um, and part of living meaningfully, very important part, is reminding people about the meaningful difference that they make to others. That it's very easy when someone is living with cancer to overlook that their physical presence, their love, and their attention makes such a huge difference to um, those people around them. And that even if they're not making dinner or working or, you know, in the same way, their connection to people around them um, is very important. And that meaning comes not just about what they provide to someone else, but by, about receiving and allowing children and loved ones uh, and coworkers to do for them. That meaning comes from both ways. Um, people often talk about give, having meaning by sharing and during values and actions. And lots of people will choose to make books, uh, creative things to give to people, talk to families uh, about what their values are. Um, and at this point in life, many people focus on intangible sources of meaning, which are not necessarily things can, that can be seen, heard, and touched. That can be connecting to their own heart and values, um, but it can be connecting to things that are important to them, the universal love and compassion, that all things are connected. Um, some, you know, the idea of courage or loyalty or patriotism and connecting to the values that matter to them. Many people like to feel a connection that they're part of something larger than themselves. Um, and that's what I define as spirituality, which is a, a personal belief in a connection to something intangible beyond themselves that may or may not be religious. So for some people, it's their connection to the larger forces of the universe, science or being in nature, for example. Um, for some people, a larger something larger than them is their family. Um, and for other people, it can be their connection to their religions, which is a religion is really shared words, actions, and beliefs, common prayers and texts and um, 
and values. And for many people, um, that helps them feel less alone, that, that there is somebody there that cares about them. Some people describe God as the ultimate source of social support um, in the face of uh, uncertainty and a way to understand confusing words, the world. Um, but really, there are sources of meaning, comfort, and hope are very personal. For some, it comes from religion, some it comes from nature, some it comes from our family. And But it's important for people to link to whatever that is for them. Um, there's actually been research that says connection to, to spirituality, which is to something, to whatever is the larger thing for them, whether it's their values or religion or nature, that it's been linked to better immune functioning, lower risk of developing cancer, and greater in emotional, physical health, pain tolerance, and even survival. Um, so it's very important. And lastly, that there are very different ways to express ourselves, that some of us want to do it in solitude, some of us want to join with others, some of us want to do it in communal prayers, so, but some of us find it through secular readings and meditations that express their heart. And even if our relationships or our connections to the divine or our values have not always been what we want them to be, relationships and our connections are not simply black or white, perfect or useless, and that feelings and thoughts change and relationships evolve. And so for many people, this is a time to renew or find new connections to their values, relationships, spiritual connections, or communal, communal relationships that, sent, that temporarily seemed like they weren't going to work. Mm, like like another chance, yes, you know? Like another chance. And that's part of the gift that your friends and many of our friends talk about. Yeah, yeah. This has been so helpful. Um, in in honesty, you know, as as I've been very brutally honest, you know, about my own fears and I I was a little nervous to read the book. Um, because and you even mentioned this. You mentioned that some people the books a book about cancer will sit because it's for somebody else. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't had it. Um, but it helped me so much in understanding what my loved ones are going through and have gone through. And like I said, really, you could use this with any stressful situation, with any grief, with any challenge. Even as you were talking about how to talk to children, I was thinking about how I coach my clients to talk to their children about separation or divorce. Absolutely. It applies the same way or anything difficult. And so I bring that up to tell my listeners that your book is not really just about coping with cancer. It's really like the, the subtitle says DBT skills to manage your emotions and balance uncertainty with hope. And so I really want to encourage people to take a look at that. Um, I know you have a webinar coming up on April 9th. Can you tell our listeners where they can find more information about that? Yep, it's with leadingedgeseminars.com. Um, okay. There's um, my website is EC stuntz.com and that has more information about it as well. There's a link to buy the book there, although it's available in Amazon or any of Barnes and Nobles or any of them. Okay, great. And like I said, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was so insightful and so well-written and the tools that are in there. And there are tools, if I recall, and almost there are tools, practical tools in every chapter. Yeah, that people can use. I'm using them for totally different things. So Absolutely. very, very helpful. It's been a joy talking to you. Thank you so much. You too, Kim. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Hopefully you've heard something that will help you as you continue to navigate the connections in your everyday relationships. If you'd like to connect with me on Instagram, you can follow me at Dr. Kim Swales or check out my website, www.kimswales.com. I'd also love if you would click subscribe 
and leave a positive review or a five-star rating for the podcast, as well as share it with your friends and family. The material in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you are in need of medical or psychological counsel, please seek a licensed professional in your area. This episode was edited and produced by Sonia Kerrigan.